different ideas for a job that we believed that we were going to do perhaps later on in life. Talk to elementary school children and, and just go back to those days of being an elementary school child. And I would imagine some of the jobs that, that came to mind were this, to be a firefighter, perhaps to be a police officer. Maybe some had this amazing impact, with, uh, were impacted so much by a teacher that they desired to be a teacher. For some, it was to be a doctor, a lawyer, a professional athlete maybe, a veterinarian. Variety of different skills, variety of different jobs out there. Perhaps you saw your parents as an electrician or, or whatever, and you were saying, man, I want to do that later on in life. Every elementary school child has some type of an idea of what job they would like to do. And when they share those with their parents, the parents get this idea of, well, that could possibly happen and we're going to see what happens and, and, and we move forward in that. For a number of years, as I was growing up, I wanted to be an 18-wheel truck driver. I was seriously impacted by the movie Smokey and the Bandit and uh, eastbound and down, loaded up and trucking. You know, we're going to see what they, they can't be done, you know. So I was all excited about that. So had my rig picked out and all this, and my parents just said, okay, that's fine. They thought it would pass, but then I was a sophomore in high school, and I'm sitting there going, man, I still want to be a truck driver. My dad's looking at me like, that, we need to talk. You know, and then God got hold of my life, and, and uh, some things changed. But, uh, but the point is, is that, is that parents... You hear these desires, these jobs that your children have, their ideas, their dreams for what that job might be. And imagine, you're at the dinner table, or you're out driving around, and you ask this question, what would you like to do when you grow up? And your child looked at you, and they responded with this word, I'd like to be a prostitute. The reaction you're having right now, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. Because the story we're going to look at today in Joshua chapter 2 is about a prostitute. No parent desires to hear from their child as they're growing up in third, fourth, and fifth grade saying that they'd like to be a prostitute. No parent wants to hear that. Talk to any elementary school kid. They're not going to say that answer. But when we hear this, it conjures up images. It conjures up a reaction. And so often we want that reaction to stay with that person. They're stigmatized and they want, we want to keep them there. The reason why I went this route with this intro to the message is because I wanted you to feel something. Because so often we can come into the Bible and we come into these places where the Bible talks about different things and, and we want to gloss over it, but that same reaction that you had about hearing your child say, I'd like to be a prostitute. That same reaction. We need to have that as we take a look at this story. And we need to have that because God gets involved. God gets involved and does something. So I invite you in your Bibles to turn to, to Joshua chapter 2. You can scroll, scroll there on your phone or, or if you're using one of the Bibles that's in the rack in front of you, it's on page 178. 
And we're going to start looking at the story at verse 4. It says this, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men you came to me, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know where, which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up onto the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when Yahweh gives us this land. Father, we pray now as we come to this time of looking at your word. We pray this every week that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we could see what it is that we need to see. We pray that you would open our minds so that we can understand what it is that we need to understand. That you would open our ears that we can hear your message of faithful, loving kindness. And that you would open our hearts that we would be transformed. Realizing that it's not where we begin, but where we finish that matters. Holy Spirit, may no one hear anything that I say, but may it be only what it is that you desire them to hear and need them to hear. And Lord Jesus, may you receive all glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So these two spies were there. And what's interesting is so often we find this throughout Scripture, God's story runs counter. By that I mean His story runs counter to what society and culture thinks it should do. God's story always runs counter to this. And here's another example of it in Joshua chapter 2. God's story of rescuing humanity is definitely not neat and tidy. So often we forget that, don't we? We think that God comes in and He rescues neat and tidy people. And He restores them and He takes care of them. And if they're too dirty or they're too, they're too ostracized, God doesn't want to have anything to do with them. They need to clean up their act. But again and again throughout Scripture, we find this to be true, that God meets people where they are. Moses is, is, is lauded as one of the greatest heroes of the faith. But you know what? Moses had an anger issue. 
And it got the best of them a few times. We sit there and we think about the apostles and how there are all these great, that we want to think that they're these great altogether guys. Keep in mind, not a one of them had a single rabbi say, hey, I want to devote my life to teaching you. They were kicked to the curb. They didn't have anything to offer. They weren't neat and tidy. Fishermen were not neat, tidy guys. We have Gideon from the Old Testament who's out threshing, threshing wheat one day and, and the angel of the Lord shows up and says, hey, mighty warrior. And Gideon's response is, oh, that can't be me. I come from this really weak clan. You, please, it's not me. We have a guy who has a self-image problem. A woe is me guy. He would be the Debbie Downer. I guess he'd be a David Downer at a party. Hey, Gideon, come on in. No, really, I don't want to come in. I'm sorry. God gets involved. We have Hosea. Talk about a, a not-so-neat-and-tidy story. Hosea, I'm raising you up, and by the way, I want you to marry a prostitute. What? Imagine that dinner conversation. Hey, Mom, Dad, meet my, meet my fiancé, the prostitute. Wow. God, over and over and over again, when He goes to rescue humanity, it is not neat and tidy. It just isn't. That's all there is to it. And so the straight facts about this encounter, you have these two Israelites. They go into the town of Jericho. And by the way, Jericho was this oasis in the middle of the desert. Palm trees everywhere. Just beautiful, lush land. They go there and they go to a prostitute's house. The main character, one of the main characters in this story is a prostitute. We want the Bible to sterilize this story. We want the Bible to simply say that, that, that Rahab was an innkeeper. She wasn't an innkeeper. She may very well have been an innkeeper, but she was a prostitute. All throughout Scripture it says Rahab the prostitute. Again and again and again. So that's a straight fact. She's, a, she's an innkeeper. I mean, she's a prostitute. Sorry. <laughs> I really do know what I'm talking about today. Also, by the way, it's great having my voice back. Um, it, it feels good to be back among the living, um, so that's a good thing. But then we go on here, and we see it in verse 4, where she says this, because the king sends in these people to say, hey, we heard there are spies at your place. And her response in verse 4, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. Here's what's interesting. The two spies believe her lie. They don't sit there and do any type of investigating in the house. They just say, fine, we'll go look. They just take off. They don't worry about it. So there's lying involved here. Notice I put it in quotes. Because there's debate on whether or not what she's doing is, is full-on lying or not. And that's a whole other discussion somewhere down the road. And here's the other thing that doesn't get talked very much about. Joshua's instructions were this, go and investigate the land. Joshua's instructions were not, go to the house of a prostitute and hang out there for a while. There is interaction with a non-Israelite. That's a huge, huge wrong 
are a huge no-no, I guess you could say. He says, investigate the land. And these two spies could have gone around and done whatever, but I would imagine they sort of stuck out a little bit. It was sort of obvious. So they go to this place of, they go to this, they go to Rahab's place, this prostitute's place, and, and they're hanging out there. And perhaps part of the reason why they went in there was because there were a whole lot of, there was a whole lot of coming in and coming out and all this kind of stuff, all different types of folks coming in there all the time. We don't know. All we know is that they went there. And all we know is this is not neat and tidy. Here's truth. Truth is this. We have a God who is unafraid of your ugly past. We have a God who's unafraid of it. Some of you are here this morning thinking, well, you don't know my past. You don't know the things I've done. My response to you would be this. You don't know my past. You don't know the things that I've done. My response to you and me is this. God does know. And God still cares. And God still rescues. Don't allow your ugly past to be what defines you in your present and in your future. Allow God to come in and say, I'm here to change everything. And he'll do that. All of us are here this morning because all of us have some type of an ugly past. And God said, I know. And I'm still here. And I still came to rescue you. It amazes me. And one of the things that I want to also talk, uh, make a quick plug again about life groups is one of the things that, that I've learned in my life group is that my life group, they really love me even though I've got issues. They know more about me than, than just about anybody else in this, in this community, and yet they still care about me. It's an amazing thing. And so Rahab, in essence, gets connected to a new life group. These men come alongside her and they come into her place and they begin to talk and so she covers for them and she literally covers them. In verse 6 it says, But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that Yahweh has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. Courage counters fear. Rahab did the math in her head. Rahab realized something significant is about to happen. And notice what she says here. We melted, this land has a great fear. A great fear of you has fallen on us. Keep in mind, Jericho at the time was this mighty city. Why would they be afraid of this fledgling group of people that didn't even have a place yet? It's this mighty city, and yet they're now trembling with great fear. And remember this about fear. Fear always paralyzes us. 
When we allow fear to gain a grip in our lives, when we allow fear to sink its talons into our lives, what ends up happening is we get stuck and we can't move. You ever play the worst case scenario game? You have an opportunity presented before you and all of a sudden you realize, wow, I could go for this, but I'm afraid to try it because it's something different. And so what ends up happening is we start running with these worst case scenarios in our head. Well, if I do this, maybe this isn't going to work out and I'm going to look like a fool. Or if I do this, remember, you know what I'm talking about? Or am I the only one that plays worst case scenario? Rahab could sit there and say, you know what? Things aren't looking real good for us right now. It's over. I'm done. Cash is in her chips and that's it. But Rahab doesn't do that because she realizes there's something going on. This courageous hope that we're talking about all throughout the book of Joshua, that courageous hope is that it, it gives us the courage to counter the fear. Fear's real. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. What I'm saying is courage is more powerful and courage placed in the hands of God is an incredibly powerful, powerful tool in our lives. All of us battle fear. But when God moves, decisions need to be made. And for Rahab, she's seeing something going on here. She's seeing something that is unlike anything she's seen before. Keep in mind, her entire upbringing is, is, as a Canaanite involves, involves worshiping a variety of gods. Not only does it involve worshiping a variety of gods, it also involves sacrificing your children to the gods. Sacrificing your little ones. Tossing men to the fire as an offering to appease the gods. But Yahweh, this God of the Israelites, is different. Radically different. And she saw something. And God's moving. God is doing something, and all of a sudden she realizes, look what she says, I know that Yahweh, I know that Yahweh has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed when we heard of it our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you for Yahweh your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below Rahab it's interesting Rahab knows that God is the one who gave the Israelites victory you would think that they would know about Moses you would think that, the, that she would say, we know how Moses led you through the Red Sea. We know how Moses helped you conquer these two Amorite kings. But she doesn't credit Moses with the victory. She credits the Lord. She credits Yahweh. And what's important to remember about this, back in that day, back in that day, and this is part of the reason why she credits Yahweh with this, people believed that their God was literally fighting these wars. 
You'll see that all throughout the Old Testament as the Israelites battle different, different groups. And, and these, sometimes, the, sometimes the Israelites win, sometimes they lose. But it's always credited to Baal or Molech or whatever. They're the ones that gave victory. It was believed that their gods came alongside them and were in the trenches with them battling. And so Rahab says Yahweh, and it's interesting, she even refers to him as Yahweh. She gives him a name. She gives him the name that is his name. And she acknowledges, look at verse 11. This is a, this, this, her theology is so spot on. For Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab acknowledges the superiority of Yahweh, the superiority of God. We have one message here of loving God and loving people. We have one purpose here of as we go, we make disciples. And we have one response. And what's that response? That every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Rahab gets the one response. She says, your God is the superior one. Your God is far greater than any gods that we have here as Canaanites. Your God is the one who is, who is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Your God, not our gods, your God. A powerful confession that she makes. And so often in our lives, as we encounter fear, as we encounter things that God's doing, so often in our lives, we want to limit who God is and we want to say, Lord, I don't know if you can handle this. We need to remember that throughout Scripture and throughout the history of humanity, God reigns supreme. There is no other that loves, that has power, that can conquer anything that comes our way. Her statement here is some profound theology for a non-Israelite. And it's true. It's true. And then she sort of turns up the heat a little bit with these two spies, and she says this in verse 12, Now then, now then, please swear to me by Yahweh that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Faithfulness counters brokenness. Faithfulness counters brokenness. Notice what what she's asking for here. She's asking for what is called, and she calls it a sure sign. But notice what she says. Show kindness to my family because because I have shown kindness to you. Rahab's occupation is one of unfaithfulness. She's a prostitute. She has no idea what faithful love looks like. No clue whatsoever. At least in the way she lives her life. But here's what's interesting. That word kindness that we read here is one of the most powerful words, if not the most powerful Hebrew word in all the Old Testament. And it's, it's that word called hesed. It is God's loving, faithful kindness she uses this word hesed which is a word based entirely on god's merciful and kind faithfulness this canaanite woman uses a powerful word about god's faithfulness and mercy let that sink in 
It's so easy to write people off. It's so easy to think, well, there's nothing they can do. They're, they're, they're irredeemable. They're, they're, it's not going to work. Nobody is beyond God's mercy and loving, faithful kindness. She knows this. She understands this. People, listen to me, people long for faithfulness. They long for it. They want it. They're looking everywhere for it. And it's why everybody's so miserable. Because they're looking for loving, faithful kindness in all the wrong places. And God is saying, I'm the one who provides the faithfulness. I'm the one who will take care of you. I'm the one who will not let you down. Look at your life right now. Look at all those broken promises that have been made to you and have left you hurting. Yet God, because He has this hessedness about Him, says you can bank on Me. You can depend on Me. Rahab was longing for that. The irony here is, is it, it catches me every single time I read this story. Here's this woman involved in an unfaithful occupation, yet she yearns for faithfulness. All of us yearn for that. Every person we meet yearns for that type of faithfulness. And here's what strikes me about this woman. Give me a sure sign, verse 13, that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Her concern is for more than herself. She could have simply hidden these guys and said, listen, as long as I'm good, we're okay. But, She says, I'm concerned about my mom, my dad, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them. My entire, I want that whole crew. Can you take care of them? Can you protect us? Here's what's fascinating about this. When we've encountered the salvation, when we've encountered the rescue that Jesus Christ offers us, why is it that so quickly we forget that He desires to rescue everyone. And we only look out for ourselves. I'm good. I'm taken care of. Don't need to worry about anything. I want to ask you a very difficult question. Is your concern for salvation, is your concern for rescuing for more than just yourself? As you look at your life, how often are you concerned for those who don't know Jesus? When you look at your life, how concerned are you for those that you know need the hope of Christ? I want to encourage you to do three things. The first is this, pray for others. All of us in our lives have people that don't know Christ. I'm praying right now for one of the guys that uh, has become a pretty good friend of mine. 
And I pray, I play golf with him every Friday, and, and I'm praying for him. And I'm praying that as we continue building our friendship, that, that, that God will continue to open up a door and, and that he will realize that there's more to, to life than, than playing golf. I have a hard time believing that at times, but anyway, my point is. But I'm praying for him. So number one, pray for others. Number two, seek opportunities to serve. What do I mean by this? Your friends that don't know Christ are going through stuff in life. Perhaps they're, they're moving. Perhaps they're doing this. Perhaps they're doing that. Seek opportunities to serve. Here's another idea. If you're serving, ask them to come alongside you and, and help out as well. And here's the third thing. Stick with your commitments. Be faithful. By being faithful, it speaks volumes to people because they don't know how to handle it. We live in a world now, and it's become a sad day. This hit me the other day. It's become a sad day when people are shocked when a commitment is kept. People are shocked. That's a sad day. We get to be faithful. We get to stick with our commitments. And so Rahab makes this, makes this deal, for lack of a better word. In verse 14, our lives for your lives, if you don't tell what we're doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully. Faithfully, when Yahweh gives us the land, the spies speak up and say, we know this is going to happen. We know Yahweh's with us. He's going to take care of us. So verse 15, so she let them down by a rope through the windows for the, house, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. And the men said to her, this, is, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. But if you, but, but if you have this cord in the window, you're going to be okay. We can count on those who countered. What do I mean by this? Rahab counters the Canaanites. And she lets down the the scarlet cord. God was at work in her lives. And and God was at work in her life in such a way that all of a sudden she sees this situation before. She doesn't know what to do, but she does something. And she says, this is the, I need to follow after Yahweh. God always works in the lives of those who listen to him even when no one else will listen to them. He does that. It's not a matter of where Rahab started. It was a matter of where Rahab finished that matters. And Rahab makes two impressive, quote-unquote, who's who lists, by the way. This one act, this one act that she pulls off, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And by the way, we're not quite done with chapter Joshua 2, but, but in Matthew chapter 1, 
Matthew opens his gospel with this genealogy, and there's reasons for that. Uh, and, and so, so um, one of the reasons is, is that he wants to show Jesus' lineage, and he wants to say, this is why this guy is the, tr- is the true Messiah. So we read through this lineage, and, and it can be really, frankly, it can be pretty boring. But we come to verse 5 of Matthew 1. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. There are three women in Jesus' genealogy, and one of them is Rahab, a prostitute. She's in Jesus' lineage, which is amazing. Now, continue going a few more pages to the right and go to Hebrews chapter 11. And we have what is called, what I call, the Hall of Faith. These are the heroes. These are the ones that are lauded as being amazing individuals. We come to verse 31 of Hebrews 11. And it says this. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. All these amazing heroes of the faith. And in the midst of all this long list, and it's an impressive list, when I find myself discouraged or frustrated or or whatever the case may be, I sometimes find myself going to Hebrews 11 and, and using it as a reminder of what God can do and how God wants to use me in my life. And I read through this and I find myself getting encouraged. In the midst of all these individuals, Rahab, the prostitute, makes the list. You see, when she let down that cord to rescue the spies, to rescue her family, it wasn't because, well, it is because there is nothing else she could do. She had faith. She had faith. And it's interesting. It's very interesting that it's a scarlet cord. The Bible, when it uses adjectives like that, they're there for a reason. The the color scarlet throughout Scripture symbolizes blood. There is a scarlet thread that weaves its way all throughout Scripture. It starts in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Adam and Eve had made a mistake. They tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves. God confronts them. After the confrontation is over, what does God do? He provides clothing for them. What has to be made, to ma- what has to be done to provide the clothing? Animals have to be sacrificed. It continues on. We move to Genesis chapter 22 where, where, where Isaac is going to be offered up as a sacrifice. And he says, Dad, where's, 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 the, where's the sacrifice? His dad says, I've got it covered. Don't worry about it. Ties him down. He's getting ready to sacrifice his son. And what happens? God provides a ram in the thicket. In Exodus chapter 12, as all the plagues are going on again and again and again, God says, mark your doorposts. 
with blood, and I will pass over those doors. We continue on. We look at the story in Joshua chapter 2. A scarlet cord led out of the window, and so the spies can leave, and that scarlet cord is there in Joshua chapter 6, and everybody else gets, gets taken out, but Rahab and her family don't because the scarlet cord is there. As you read the description of the priestly garments that, that, were, that are described for us in the Old Testament, part of the priestly garments involves a scarlet cord representing blood sacrifices that have to be made to appease Yahweh. As you read about the curtains in the temple and all the, all the adornments in the temple, the word scarlet is used throughout it. Reminding us of the fact that Blood needs to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. All throughout the Old Testament, we're told of sacrifices. All throughout the Old Testament, and from, from who knows how many animals were sacrificed over the year, all because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. It's all throughout Scripture. And then we come to this place in John chapter 1, where we read these words. Verse 29 says this, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The scarlet thread all throughout Scripture weaves its way there. And it ends at the cross. And as Jesus cried out on that cross, it is finished. Matthew tells us that the curtains in the temple were torn in two from top to bottom meaning that the scarlet thread is taken care of now. The forgiveness is full. The forgiveness is taken care of because Jesus Christ is the one who countered all the damage wrought by sin. It is finished. Rahab, a prostitute didn't finish as a prostitute. She finished as one of the heroes of the faith. We have throughout Scripture God constantly rescuing humanity. Rahab is rescued. Rahab's life is radically different. I want to invite the band to come up, uh, the, the team to come up as we get ready to wrap up here in just a few moments. But what I want us to reflect on is this is how amazing God is in rescuing humanity. And what I want us to also re re uh, reflect on is this. Is that, why is it that we want so much for our lives to be dictated by a past that's been redeemed, has been covered by Jesus' blood, and He says, you don't have to live there anymore. Why is it that we obsess there rather than moving into this identity that Jesus Christ gives us, the forgiveness of sin, the new life that He gives us? Why live there when He invites us to live here?
as we sing these songs, it's my prayer that we will be reminded once again that the one who came to save, Jesus Christ, had the courage to counter everything that's involved in your life that is holding you back. And he says, I've forgiven you. Will you place your trust in me and grab that scarlet cord of forgiveness? Father, we pray now in the midst of these moments we know that we have a past. And we know that we have allowed that past to rule our present and even our future. And we confess to You. We confess to You that we're powerless without Your incredible grace setting us free. We confess to You that so often we disregard the blood that was shed that sets us free. And we would ask that You would have mercy on us, that You would forgive us for those times where we have refused to be rescued. Father, move in our midst. And for those in this room right now that are struggling to believe that You care for them, we pray that by the power of Your Holy Spirit, You'd break through that barrier and that You would draw them to Yourself. Because those words that were cried out on the cross by Jesus Christ, it is finished, are so true. Our past is done. You have rescued us. And You desire us to live life fully. May that truth sink into each and every one of our lives. Lord Jesus Christ, be lifted up. In your name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and sing.